Welcome to the Seattle Public Library's podcasts of author readings and library events, a series of readings, performances, lectures, and discussions. Library podcasts are brought to you by the Seattle Public Library and Foundation. To learn more about our programs and podcasts, visit our website at www.spl.org. To learn how you can help the Library Foundation support the Seattle Public Library, go to foundation.spl.org. The podcast you're about to hear was recorded in 2011. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Thrilling Tales. It's great to see you here today. My name is David. I'm a librarian. I work upstairs in the Reader Services Department on the third floor. So do come and see us sometime. Thrilling Tales happens on the first and third Monday of most every month. Today, we are featuring an author named Edith Nesbitt, or as she sometimes published, E. Nesbitt. Did anybody here as a child read The Railway Children? Okay. Well, it's a wonderful children's book. It's also great for adults. And it's what she's most known for was her books of uh, children's stories. But she also wrote some things for adults, some very spooky things. And that's what we're going to have here today. As we often do, I will start with a very short story just for a, an appetizer and for latecomers. And then we will get to the main event. So our first story is a love story. And it's called Uncle Abraham's Romance by Edith Nesbitt. No, my dear, my Uncle Abraham answered me, no, nothing romantic ever happened to me, unless, ah, but no, that wasn't romantic either. I was, to me, being 18, romance was the world. My Uncle Abraham was old and lame. I followed the gaze of his faded eyes, and my own rested on a miniature that hung at his elbow chair's right hand, a portrait of a woman whose loveliness even the miniature painter's art had been powerless to disguise, a woman with large eyes that shone, and a face of that alluring oval which one hardly sees nowadays. I rose to look at it. I had looked at it a hundred times. Often enough in my baby days I had asked, Who's that, uncle? And always the answer was the same. A lady who died long ago, my dear. As I looked again at the picture, I asked, Was she like this? Who? Your, your romance. Uncle Abraham looked hard at me. Yes, he said at last, yes, very, very like. I sat down on the floor by him. Won't you tell me about her? There's nothing to tell, he said. I think it was fancy mostly and folly, but... It's the realest thing in my life, my dear. A long pause. I kept silent. You should always give people time, especially old people. I remember, he said in the dreamy tone, always promising so well to the ear uh, that loves a story. I remember when I was a young man, I was very lonely indeed. I never had a sweetheart. I was always lame, my dear, from quite a boy, and the girls used to laugh at me. Silence again, and presently he went on. 
And so I got into the way of mooning off by myself in lonely places. One of my favorite walks was up through our churchyard, which was set on a hill in the middle of the marsh country. I liked that because I never met anyone there. It's all over years ago, and I was a silly lad, but I couldn't bear of a summer evening to hear a rustle and a whisper from the other side of the hedge, or maybe a kiss as I went by. Well, I used to go and sit all by myself in the churchyard, which was always sweet with the time and quite light on account of it being so high long after the marshes were dark. I used to watch the bats flitting about in the red light and wonder why God didn't make everyone's legs straight and strong and wicked follies like that. But by the time the light was gone, I had always worked it off, so to speak, and could go home quietly and say my prayers without bitterness. Well, one hot night in August, when I had watched the sunset fade and the crescent moon grow golden, I was just stepping over the low stone wall of the churchyard when I heard a rustle behind me. I turned around, expecting it to be a rabbit or a bird. It was a woman. He looked at the portrait. So did I. Yes, he said, that was her very face. I was a bit scared and said something. I don't know what. She laughed and said, did I think she was a ghost? And I answered back and I stayed talking to her over the churchyard wall till it was quite dark and the glowworms were out in the wet grass all along the way home. Next night I saw her again, and the next, and the next, always at twilight time. And if I passed any lovers leaning on the stiles in the marshes, it was nothing to me now. Again, my uncle paused. It was very long ago, he said shyly, and I'm an old man. But I know what youth means and happiness. Though I was always lame and the girls used to laugh at me. I don't know how long it went on. You don't measure time in dreams. But at last your grandfather said I looked as if I had one foot in the grave and he would be sending me to stay with our kin in Bath and take the waters. I had to go. I could not tell my father why. I would rather die than go. What was her name, uncle? I asked. She never would tell me her name, and why should she? I had names enough in my heart to call her by. Marriage? Well, my dear, even then I knew marriage was not for me. But I met her night after night, always in our churchyard where the yew trees were the old crooked gravestones so thick in the grass. It was there we always met and always parted. The last time was the night before I went away. She was very sad and dearer than life itself. And she said, If you come back before the new moon, I shall meet you here just as usual. But if the new moon shines on this grave and you are not here... You will never see me again any more. She laid her hand on the tomb against which we had been leaning. It was an old, lichened, weather-worn stone, and its inscription was just, Susanna Kingsnorth died 1723. I shall be here, I said. 
I mean it, she said, very seriously and slowly. It is no fancy. You will be here when the new moon shines? I promised, and after a while we parted. I had been with my kinsfolk in Bath for nearly a month. I was to go home on the next day when, turning over a case in the parlor, I came upon that miniature. I could not speak for a minute. At last I said with dry tongue and heart beating to the tune of heaven and hell, Who is this? That, said my aunt, oh, she was betrothed to one of our family years ago, but she died before the wedding. They say she was a bit of a witch, a handsome one, wasn't she? I looked again at the face, the lips, the eyes of my dear, lovely love, whom I was to meet tomorrow night when the new moon shone on that tomb in our churchyard. Did you say she was dead? I asked, and hardly knew my own voice. Years and years ago, her name's on the back and the date. I took the portrait out of its case. I remember just the color of its faded red velvet bed. And read on the back, Susanna Kingsnorth died 1723. That was in 1823. My uncle stopped short. What happened? I asked, breathlessly. I believe I had a fit, my uncle answered slowly. At any rate, I was very ill. And you missed the new moon on the grave? I missed the new moon on the grave. And you never saw her again? I never saw her again. But, uncle, do you really believe... Can the dead... Was she... Did you... My uncle took his pipe and filled it. Well, it's a long time ago, he said, and many, many years. Old man's tales, my dear, old man's tales. Don't you take any notice of them. He lighted the pipe and puffed silently a moment or two before he said, But I know what youth means, and love, and happiness. Though I was always lame, and the girls used to laugh at me. The end. All right, our main story today is also by Edith Nesbitt, who, when she wrote scary stories, this is from a collection called Grim Tales. She just went by E. Nesbitt. And this one is called In the Dark. It may have been a form of madness, or it may be that he really was what is called haunted. Or it may, though I don't pretend to understand how, have been the development through intense suffering of a sixth sense in a very nervous and highly strung nature. Something certainly led him where they were, and to him they were all one. He told me the first part of the story, and the last part I saw with my own eyes. Haldane and I were friends, even in our school days. What first brought us together was our common hatred of Visger, who came from our part of the country. His people knew our people at home, and so he was put on to us when he came. He was the most intolerable person, boy and man, that I have ever known. He would not tell a lie, and that was all right, but 
he didn't stop at that. If he were asked whether any other chap had done anything, been out of bounds or up to any sort of a lark, he would always say, I don't know, sir, but I believe so. He never did know we, we took care of that, but what he believed was always right. I remember Haldane twisting his arm to say how he knew about that cherry tree business, and he only said, I don't know, I just feel sure. And I was right, you see. <laughs> what can you do with a boy like that? We grew up to be men, at least Haldane and I did. Visger grew up to be a prig. He was a vegetarian and a teetotaler and an all-wooler and Christian scientist and all the things that prigs are. But he wasn't a common prig. He knew all sorts of things that he oughtn't to have known, that he couldn't have known in any ordinary, decent way. And it wasn't that he found things out. He just knew them. Once, when I was very unhappy, he came into my rooms. We were in our last year at Oxford. And talked about things that I hardly knew myself. That was really why I went to India that winter. It was bad enough to be unhappy without having that beast know all about it. Well, I was away over a year, and coming back I thought a lot about how jolly it would be to see old Haldane again. If I thought about Visger at all, I wished he was dead, but I didn't think about him much. I did want to see Haldane. He was always such a jolly chap, gay and kindly and simple, honorable, upright, and full of practical sympathies. I longed to see him, to see the smile in his jolly blue eyes looking out from the net of wrinkles that laughing had made round them, and hear his jolly laugh and feel the good grip of his big hand. I went straight from the docks to his chambers in Gray's Inn, and I found him cold pale, anemic, with dull eyes and a limp hand, and pale lips that smiled without mirth, and uttered a welcome without gladness. He was surrounded by a litter of disordered furniture and personal effects, half-packed. Some big boxes stood corded, and there were cases of books, filled and waiting for the enclosing boards to be nailed on. Yes, I'm moving, he said. I can't stand these rooms. Something strange about them, something devilishly strange. I clear out tomorrow. The autumn dusk was filling the corners with shadows. Oh, you, uh, you got the furs, I said, just for something to say, for I saw the big case that held them lying corded among the others. Furs? He said. Oh, oh, yes, thanks, awfully. Yes, I, I forgot about the furs. He laughed out of politeness, I suppose, for there was no joke about the furs. They were many and fine, the best I could get for the money, and I had seen them packed and sent off when my heart was very sore. He stood and looked at me and said nothing. Come out and have a bit of dinner, I said, as cheerfully as I could. Too busy, he answered, after the slightest possible pause, and a glance round the room. Look here, I, I'm awfully glad to see you. If you just slip over and order in dinner, I, I'd go myself, only, well, you see how it is. I went, and when I came back, he had cleared a space near the fire and moved his big gate table into it, and we dined there by candlelight. I tried to be amusing... He, I'm sure, tried to be amused. We did not succeed, either of us. 
and his haggard eyes watched me all the time, save in those fleeting moments when, without his turning his head, he glanced back over his shoulder into the shadows that crowded round the little lighted place where we sat. When we had dined, and the man had come and taken away the dishes, I looked at Haldane very steadily, so that he stopped in a pointless anecdote and looked interrogation at me. Well, I said, you're not listening, he said petulantly. What's the matter? Well, that's what you'd better tell me, I said. He was silent, gave one of those furtive glances at the shadows, and then stooped to stir the fire to, I knew it, a blaze that must light every corner of the room. You're all to pieces, I said cheerfully. What have you been up to? Wine? Cards? Speculation? A woman? Well, you know, if you won't tell me, you'll have to tell your doctor. Why, my dear chap, you're a wreck. You're a comfortable friend to have about the place, he said, and smiled a mechanical smile, not at all pleasant to see. I'm the friend you want, I think, said I. Do you suppose I'm blind? Something has gone wrong, and you've taken to something. Morphia, perhaps? And you've brooded over the thing till you've lost all sense of proportion. Now, out with it, old chap. I bet you a dollar it's not so bad as you think it. If I could tell you, or tell anyone, he said slowly, it wouldn't be so bad as it is. If I could tell anyone, I'd tell you. Even as it is, I've told you more than I've told anyone else. I could get nothing more out of him. But he pressed me to stay, would have given me his bed and made himself a shakedown, he said. But I had engaged a room at the Victoria, and I was expecting letters, so I left him quite late. And he stood on the stairs holding a candle over the banisters to light me down. When I went back the next morning, he was gone. Men were moving his furniture into a big van with somebody's pantechnicon painted on it in big letters. He had left no address with the porter, and he had driven off in a hansom with two portmanteaux, or two Waterloo, the porter thought. Well, a man has a right to the monopoly of his own troubles, if he chooses to have it. And I had troubles of my own that kept me busy. It was more than a year later that I saw Haldane again. I had got rooms in the Albany by this time, and he turned up there one morning, very early indeed, before breakfast, in fact. And if he had looked ghastly before, he now looked almost ghostly. His face looked as though it had worn thin like an oyster shell that has for years been cast up twice a day by the sea on a shore all pebbly. His hands were thin as a bird's claws, and they trembled like caught butterflies. I welcomed him with enthusiastic cordiality and pressed breakfast on him. And this time I decided I would ask no questions, for I saw that none were needed. He would tell me. He intended to tell me. He'd come here to tell me, and for nothing else. I lit the spirit lamp. I made coffee and small talk for him. And I ate and drank and waited for him to begin. And it was like this that he began. I am going, he said, to kill myself. Oh, don't be alarmed. I suppose I had said or looked something. I shan't do it here or now. I shall do it when I have to, when I can't bear it any longer. And I want someone to know why. I don't want to feel that I'm the only living creature who does know, and I can trust you, can't I? 
I murmured something reassuring. I should like you, if, if you don't mind, to give me your word that you won't tell a soul what I'm going to tell you as long as I'm alive. Afterwards, you can tell whom you please. I gave him my word. He sat silent, looking at the fire. Then he shrugged his shoulders. It's extraordinary how difficult it is to say it. He smiled. The fact is, you know that beast, George Visker? Yes, I said. I haven't seen him since I came back. Somebody told me he'd gone to some island or other to preach vegetarianism to the cannibals. Anyhow, he's out of the way. Bad luck to him. Yes, said Haldane, he's out of the way. But he's not preaching anything. In point of fact, he's dead. Dead? Was all I could think of to say. Yes, said he. It's not generally known, but he is. What did he die of, I asked, not that I cared. The bare fact was good enough for me. Well, you know what an interfering chap he always was. Always knew everything. Heart-to-heart -heart talks. And have everything open and above board. Well, he interfered between me and someone else. Told her a pack of lies. Lies? Well... The things were true, but he made lies of them the way he told them. Well, you know. I did. I nodded. And she threw me over. And she died. And we weren't even friends. And I couldn't see her before. I couldn't even... Oh, my God. But I went to the funeral. He was there. They'd asked... Him. And then I came back to my rooms, and I was sitting there thinking, and he came up. He would do. It's just what he would do, the beast. I hope you kicked him out. No, I didn't. I listened to what he'd got to say. He came to say that no doubt it was all for the best, that he hadn't known the things that he told her. He'd only guessed. He'd guessed right, damn him. What right had he to guess right? And he said it was all for the best, because besides that, there was madness in my family. He'd found that out, too. And is there? Well, if there is, I didn't know it. And that was why it was all for the best. So then I said, there wasn't any madness in my family before, but there is now. And I got hold of his throat. I'm not sure whether I meant to kill him. I ought to have meant to kill him. Anyhow, I did kill him. What did you say? I had said nothing. It's not easy to think at once of the tactful and suitable thing to say when your oldest friend tells you that he is a murderer. When I could get my hands out of his throat, it was as difficult as it is to drop the handles of a galvanic battery. He fell in a lump on the hearth rug, and I saw what I'd done. How is it that murderers ever get found out? They're careless, I suppose. I found myself saying they lose their nerve. I didn't, he said. I never was calmer. I sat down in the big chair, and I looked at him, and I thought it all out. He was just off to that island. I knew that. 
He'd said goodbye to everyone. He'd told me that. There was no blood to get rid of, or only a touch at the corner of his slack mouth. He wasn't going to travel in his own name because of interviewers. Mr. Somebody-something's luggage would be unclaimed and his cabin empty. No one would guess that Mr. Somebody-something was Sir George Visger, F.R.S. But it was plain as plain. There was nothing to get rid of but the man. No weapon, no blood. And I got rid of him, all right. How? He smiled cunningly. No, no, he said. That's where I draw the line. It's not that I doubt your word, but if you talked in your sleep or had a fever or anything, no, no, as long as you don't know where the body is, don't you see, I'm all right. Even if you could prove that I've said all this, which you can't, it's only the wanderings of my poor unhinged brain, you see. I saw, and I was sorry for him, and I did not believe that he had killed Visger. He was not the sort of man who kills people. So I said, yes, old chap, I see. Now, look here, let's go away together, you and I, huh? travel a bit and see the world and forget all about that beastly chap. His eyes lighted up at that. Why, he said, you understand. You, you don't hate me and shrink from me. I wish I told you before, you know, when you came and I was packing all my sticks, but, well, it's too late now. Too late? Oh, not a bit of it, I said. Come, we'll pack our traps and be off tonight. Out into the unknown, don't you know? Well, that's where I'm going, he said. You wait. When you've heard what's been happening to me, you won't be so keen to go traveling about with me. Oh, but you told me what's been happening to you, I said. And the more I thought about what he had told me, the less I believed it. No, he said slowly, no, I've told you what happened to him. What's happened to me is quite different. Did I tell you what his last words were? Just when I was coming at him, before I got his throat, you know, he said, look out. You'll never be able to get rid of the body. Besides, anger's sinful. <laughs> you know that way he had, like a tract on its hind legs. So afterwards, I got thinking of that. But I didn't think of it for a year, because I did get rid of the body all right. And then I was sitting in that comfortable chair, and I thought, well, hello, it must be about a year now since that... Uh, and I pulled out my pocketbook, and I went to the window to look at the little almanac I carry about. It, it was getting dusk. And sure enough, it was a year to the day. And then I remembered what he'd said. And I said to myself, well, not much trouble getting rid of your body, you brute. <laughs> and then I looked at the hearth rug, and... Oh! And he screamed suddenly and very loud. I can't tell you! No, I can't! My man opened the door. He wore a smooth face over his wriggling curiosity. Did you call, sir? Uh, yes, I lied. I want you to take a note to the bank and, and wait for an answer. And when he was got rid of, Haldane said, Where was I? You were just telling me what happened after you looked at the almanac? What was it? Nothing much, he said, laughing softly. Oh, nothing much, only that I glanced at the hearth rug, and there he was, 
The man I'd killed a year before. I, don't try to explain or I shall lose my temper. The door was shut. The windows were shut. He hadn't been there a minute before. And he was there then. That's all. Hallucination was one of the words I stumbled among. Exactly what I thought, he said triumphantly. But I touched it. It was quite real, heavy, you know, and harder than live people are somehow to the touch. More like a, a stone thing covered with kid, the hands were, and, and the arms like a marble statue in a blue serge suit. Don't you hate men who wear blue serge suits? There are hallucinations of touch, too, I found myself saying. Exactly what I thought, Haldane, more triumphant than ever, said. But there are limits. You know, limits. So then I thought someone had got him out, the, the real him, and stuck him there to frighten me while my back was turned and I went to the place where I'd hidden him. And he was there, just as I'd left him. Only, well, it was a year ago. There are two of him there now. My dear chap, I said, <laughs> this is simply comic. Yes, he said, it is amusing. I find it so myself, especially in the night when I wake up and think of it. I hope I shan't die in the dark, Winston. It's one of the reasons why I think I shall have to kill myself. I could be sure then of not dying in the dark. Is that all? I asked, feeling sure that it must be. No, said Haldane at once, that's not all. He's come back to me again. In a railway carriage it was. I'd been asleep, and when I woke up, there he was, lying on the seat opposite me. Looked just the same. I pitched him out onto the line at Red Hill Tunnel. And if I see him again, I'm going out myself. I can't stand it. It's too much. I'd sooner go. Whatever the next world's like, there aren't things in it like that. We leave them here in graves and boxes and... You think I'm mad, but I'm not. You can't help me. No one can help me. He knew. You see, he said I shouldn't be able to get rid of the body, and I can't get rid of it. I can't. I can't. He knew. He always did know things that he couldn't know. But I'll cut his game short. After all, I've got the ace of trumps, and I play it on his next trick. I give you my word of honor, Winston, that I am not mad. My dear old man, I said, I don't think you're mad. But I do think your nerves are very much upset. Mine are a bit too. Do you know why I went to India? It was because of you and her. I couldn't stay and see it, though I wished for your happiness and all that. You know I did. Only when I came back, she... And you... Let's see it out together, I said. You won't keep fancying things if you've got me to talk to. And I always said you weren't a half-bad old duffer. She liked you, he said. Oh, yes, I said, she liked me. And that was how we came to go abroad together. I was full of hope for him. He'd always been such a splendid chap, so sane and strong. And I couldn't believe that he was gone mad, gone forever, I mean, so that he'd never come right again. Perhaps my own trouble made it easy for me to see things not quite straight. Anyhow, I took him away to recover his mind's health, exactly as I should have taken him away to get strong after a fever. 
and the madness seemed to pass away. And in a month or two, we were perfectly jolly, and I thought I'd cured him. And I was very glad because of that old friendship of ours and because she had loved him and liked me. And we never spoke of Visger. I thought he'd forgotten all about him. I thought I understood how his mind, overstrained by sorrow and anger, had fixed on the man he hated and woven a nightmare web of horror around that detestable personality. And I had got the whip hand of my own trouble, and we were as jolly as sand boys together all those months. And we came to Bruges at last in our travels, and Bruges was very full because of the exhibition. And we could only get one room and one bed, so we tossed for the bed, and the one who lost the toss was to make the best of the night in an armchair. And the bedclothes we were to share equitably. We spent the evening at the Café Chantant and finished at a beer hall, and it was late and sleepy when we got back to the Grande Vigne. I took our key from its nail in the concierge's room, and we went up. And we talked a while, I remember, of the town and the belfry and the Venetian aspect of the canals by moonlight. And then Haldane got into bed, and I made a chrysalis of myself in my share of the blankets and fitted the tight roll into the armchair. I was not at all comfortable, but I was compensatingly tired, and I was nearly asleep when Haldane roused me up to tell me about his will. I've left everything to you, old man, he said. I know I can trust you to see to everything. Quite so, said I, and if you don't mind, we'll talk about it in the morning. He tried to go on about it, about what a friend I'd been and all that, but I shut him up and I told him to go to sleep. But no, he wasn't comfortable, he said. He'd got a thirst like a lime kiln, and he'd noticed there was no water bottle in the room, and the water in the jug's like pale soup, he said. Oh, all right, I said. Light your candle and go and get some water then, in heaven's name, and let me go to sleep. But he said, no, you light it. I, I, I don't want to get out of bed in the dark. I might, I might step on something, mightn't I, or, or walk into something that wasn't there when I got went into bed. Rot, I said. Walk into your grandmother. But I lit the candle all the same, and he sat up in bed, and he looked at me very pale, with his hair all tumbled from the pillow and his eyes blinking and shining. That's better, he said. Look here. Oh, Oh, yes, I see. It's all right. It's queer how they mark the sheets here. Blessed if I didn't think it was blood just for a minute. The sheet was marked, not at the corner, as sheets are marked at home, but right in the middle where it turns down with a big red cross-stitching. Yes, I see. It's a queer place to mark it. It's queer letters to have on it, he said. G.V. Grande Vigne, I said. What letters do you expect them to mark things with? Hurry up! You come too, he said. I mean, yes, it does stand for Grand Vigne, of course. I wish you'd come down too, Winston. I'll go down, I said, and I turned with the candle in my head. He was out of bed and close to me in a flash. No, he said, I, want to I don't want to stay alone in the dark. And he said it just as a frightened child might have done. All right, then, come along, I said, and we went. I tried to make some joke, I remember, about the length of his hair and the cut of his pajamas. But I was sick with disappointment. For it was almost quite plain to me even then that all my time and trouble had been thrown away and that he wasn't cured after all. We went down as quietly as we could and we got a carafe of water from the long bare dining table at the salle à manger. 
He got hold of my arm at first, and then he got the candle away from me, and he went very slowly, shading the light with his hand and looking very carefully all about as though he expected to see something that he wanted very desperately not to see. And of course, I knew what that something was. I didn't like the way he was going on. I can't at all express how deeply I didn't like it. And he looked over his shoulder every now and then, just as he did that first evening after I came back from India. Well, the thing got on my nerves so that I could hardly find the way back to our room. And when we got there, I give you my word, I more than half expected to see what he'd expected to see. That or something like that on the hearth rug. Of course, there was nothing. I blew out the light and I tightened my blankets round me. I'd been trailing them after me in our expedition. And I was settled in my chair when Haldane spoke. You've got all the blankets, he said. No, I haven't, said I. Only what I've always had. I can't find mine then, he said. And I could hear his teeth chattering. And I'm cold. I'm, oh, for God's sake, light the candle. Light it, light it. Something horrible. Uh, and I couldn't find the matches. Light the candle, light the candle, he said, and his voice broke as a boy's does sometimes in chapel. If you don't, he'll come to me. It's so easy to come at anyone in the dark. Oh, Winston, light the candle. For the love of God, I can't die in the dark. I am lighting it, I said savagely, and I was feeling for the matches on the marble-topped chest of drawers, on the mantelpiece everywhere, but on the round center table where I put them. You're not going to die. Don't be a fool, I said. It's all right. Get a light in a second. He said, it's cold. It's cold. It's cold. Like that three times. And then he screamed aloud like a woman, like, like, like a child, like, like a hare when the dogs have got it. I'd heard him scream like that once before. What is it? I cried, hardly less loud. For God's sake, hold your noise. What is it? There was an empty silence, and then very slowly, It's Fisger, he said, and he spoke thickly as through some stifling veil. Nonsense, where, I asked, and my hand closed on the matches as he spoke. Here, he screamed sharply as though he had torn the veil away. Here, beside me in the bed! I got the candle alight. I got across to him. He was crushed in a heap at the edge of the bed. And stretched on the bed beyond him was a dead man, white and very cold. Haldane had died in the dark. It was all so simple. We had come to the wrong room. The man the room belonged to was there on the bed he had engaged and paid for before he died of heart disease earlier in the day. A French commis voyageur representing soap and perfumery. His name, Félix Leblanc. Later in England, I made cautious inquiries the body of a man had been found in the Red Hill Tunnel. A haberdasher man named Simmons, who had drunk spirits of salts owing to the depression of the trade. The bottle was clutched in his dead hand. 
For reasons that I had, I took care to have a police inspector with me when I opened the boxes that came to me by Haldane's will. One of them was the big box, metal-lined, in which I'd sent him the skins from India for a wedding present. God help us all. It was closely soldered. Inside were the skins of beasts? No. The bodies of two men. One was identified after some trouble as that of a hawker of pens in city offices, subject to fits. He had died in one, it seemed. The other body was Visgers, right enough. Explain it as you like. I offered you, if you remember, a choice of explanations before I began the story. I have not yet found the explanation that can satisfy me. Thank you. This podcast was presented by the Seattle Public Library and Foundation and made possible by your contributions to the Seattle Public Library Foundation. Thanks for listening.